This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In today's show, we talk about the U.S. Supreme Court rescuing Obamacare again, unravel the state's budget battle, get up to date with the latest primary polls, and check in with PolitiFact, New Hampshire. I'm Clay Wirestone, a columnist and editor for The Monitor, and I'm glad to welcome our politics editor, Jonathan Van Fleet. Welcome, John. Thank you, Clay. Good to have you here. Thanks. And political reporter, Casey McDermott. Welcome, Casey. Good to be here. So let's start it off uh, with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, on Thursday morning, the justices ruled uh, 6-3 to three that health insurance subsidies could be paid to those enrolled in the federal marketplace. Uh, this was a big challenge to the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, and the High Court turned it aside pretty pretty decisively. So, Casey, can you take us through what this means for New Hampshire? Sure. So, in New Hampshire, we have what's called a hybrid exchange, where we use basically the federal government's interface, but the state retains control over what products are offered on there. Um, so, we were one of the states that would have been affected in this case because it called into question whether the uh, government could extend subsidies that would offset the cost of health insurance to people who lived outside of states with their own exchanges. Um, So basically what the ruling means is that those are fine, that the Mm -hmm. subsidies can extend to everyone. And uh, that's a big deal for New Hampshire because New Hampshire has something like 30,000 people who are receiving subsidies through the Affordable Care Act right now. So um, a lot of those who are kind of watching this closely and crossing their fingers were kind of breathing a sigh of relief this morning when that came down. And, and kind of what was, the, what was the reaction that you heard from uh, legislators or folks at the State House about this? So it's still preliminary. I think the most vocal reaction has come from the proponents who were cheering this. Um, so you had Governor Maggie Hassan coming out and saying that this was great. Um, she reiterated her call that has been ongoing to continue Medicaid expansion, which is another component of the Affordable Care Act. Um, You also had Democratic Majority Leader Stephen Shurtleff coming out and applauding it. Um, In D.C., we had Senator Shaheen, who was involved in the, um, you know, lobbying for the bill as it was going through Congress, saying, you know, it was our intent all along to extend these subsidies to everyone. Um, And then Kelly Ayotte, who is a Republican, um, in, you know, her response said that this doesn't necessarily resolve some of the issues that are still outstanding with the Affordable Care Act, and she urged colleagues in Congress to continue to work on reform. Okay. I think that's interesting, Casey. Yeah, the, a lot of the reaction has been partisan at this mm-hmm. point, with people saying, mm-hmm. the Republicans primarily saying mm-hmm. that the law is still fundamentally mm-hmm. flawed. Mm-hmm. This hasn't necessarily mm-hmm. slowed down their calls mm-hmm. for a repeal or mm-hmm. a revision of the law. I think you see differences in maybe how um, decisive the Republicans' calls for uh, a repeal and replacement of Obamacare, as it's referred to, is. Um, A lot of the presidential candidates have come out today and said, you know, the Supreme Court made the wrong decision, we really have to double down, it needs to be repealed and replaced. At the same time, you have people like Senator Ayotte, who is not as full-throated in her call for repeal, Um, and part of that really could be stemming from the fact that she recognizes that there are a lot of people in New Hampshire who this would affect. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, I think the other the other 
kind of point about this is that for so long, the GOP mantra, mantra about Obamacare has been repeal and replace, mm-hmm. and they've certainly voted to repeal it on a national level many times. The issue is, is that there's never been a replacement plan that they've ever actually coalesced around. There have been some, some principles that they've talked about. They you know, want to offer, you know, high-risk pools, allow this, the selling of health insurance across state lines, things like that. But no no actual kind of nationwide kind of, of coverage plan. And, and so in a way, there are probably some Republicans breathing a sigh of relief today because they don't actually have to all get a, have a plan to, to try to unite behind mm-hmm. on that. It's interesting how this is taking off, too, on the um, among political uh, presidential candidates, too. Today, you have Marco Rubio and Bobby Jindal in New Hampshire, and both of them were pretty uh, definitive in their criticism of the Supreme Court today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a busy Thursday morning because not only did we have that uh, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court decision, but also on Thursday, uh, our New Hampshire Governor Maggie Hassan officially vetoed uh, the budget that was passed by the legislature. She's going to sign a six-month continuing resolution to keep the state government open. Um, And just the day before, on Wednesday, she visited us all here at the Monitor um, to talk about her reasons for, uh, you know, at that time it was a veto threat, but now it's a veto reality. Um, So, John, um, talk talk to us a little bit about, you know, what's What's Maggie Hassan trying to, to do here with the with the veto? I mean, obviously, she doesn't want to implement what the Republicans have passed, but you know what she's what what is she trying to accomplish, and what's she trying to do here? Her criticisms of the budget have been really twofold. First of all, she fundamentally opposed to the business taxes. She feels that over time that is going uh, cut to the business taxes. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. There you go. She's fundamentally opposed to the cut to the business taxes. Any reduction will lead to less state revenues, which going forward will leave the state with less money to fund things like infrastructure, like drug treatment, like uh, more money to higher education. So her numbers, she says that's going to lead to $90 million of lost revenue going forward. Um, the second thing she says is that the, what this budget promises, it, it can't afford, meaning it's, it's imbalanced. That they, The Republicans that constructed it, they are double-counting money, and that as soon as the budget's passed, they're going to have to start cutting services. Those have been the reasons why she's justified her own her, her veto. So what that means, though, is now this, this concurrent resolution will go into effect and the 2015 funding levels will continue until both sides come together again and try and negotiate. So the big question, and getting back to your question, is what is she trying to accomplish? I think the real sticking point is the business tax cuts and who, which side is going to blink in this game of budget chicken? I don't know. Which side is going to be the first to compromise? I don't know, but it looks like we're in this for a little while, at least till the end of the summer. Right, and and I think one of the most compelling things the governor said when she was talking to us yesterday was just speaking about how even in this this previous budget, the one we're in now, which she acknowledged, which she has hailed as a balanced bipartisan budget, you know, it still called for what are called back of the what is back of the budget cuts, mm-hmm. meaning that. Um, they 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 said, oh well, these various agencies, these various departments get this amount of money. However, the government the governor still has to make X amount of cuts, 
in them. So, for example, she had to, you know, she had a $7 million cut she had to make. She ended up taking that out of a proposed increase in reimbursement for uh, nursing homes here recently. And then she was pilloried by, uh, by a lot of uh, legislators because she was, you know, cutting, cutting uh, nursing home spending. But, you know, her, call, her, her point was is that the budget called for her to do that. That was actually something that had been budgeted and an authority that was granted to her to do. Um, to, to be fair, Clay, before um, Governor Hassan came in, we had uh, Senate President Chuck Morse and made Senate Majority Leader Jeb Bradley here, and they mm -hmm. and they gave their their side for the budget that they put forward, mm -hmm. and they basically said, "Look, you know, the state's only got so much money. There's only so much we can do." They felt strongly that they put forward a budget that does as much as New Hampshire can afford that they feel the business tax cuts are going to stimulate the economy, that are going to uh, help New Hampshire families. They, they added money back in from the House plan, mm -hmm. that there are more uh, services than originally uh, conceived of. And so they feel that this budget does a lot of good. And they think that, that Hassan, the Governor Hassan, is, is fundamentally wrong to even threaten the veto. And, and they've, they've taken it to her. They've gone on the attack, and, and Chuck Morse in particular said that she was pandering to special interests and her own aspirations for higher political office. And, and, to, and also, there have been some, some folks in the, you know, in the social services community and such that have actually said, you know, please sign the, sign the budget because it does restore some of the cuts uh, and give, gives them some, some higher reimbursement rates than they've, than they've had before. Yeah, I think that, you know, particularly after the last few months, if you go back to when the House was crafting its budget, that was a very different budget than what we're looking at right now. And that one called for particularly severe cuts to a lot of social services. Those were um, restored in many ways in the Senate version. So I think that what you're seeing there is kind of um, the, the agencies and those organizations putting into perspective, you know, this gives them some degree of stability that they weren't sure was going to be there. Um, and especially when you're talking about, you know, small community-based organizations that really rely on a lot of funding from um, the state to help out with their operations, that can be really critical for them to just know what's coming. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when I was talking about this with some folks in the office yesterday, there was this talk that, you know, so often in the budget you think of it as, you know, it's, it's two sides. You know, it's the governor and it's the legislature, but really in a way it's almost a, a three-way negotiation. It's the governor, it's the Senate, and the House, with the House being by far the most conservative of those, of those three. And so really the issue becomes, you know, it's not just what, she, what, what uh, Governor Hassan can agree on with the Senate, it's what she can also agree on, you know, what they can get through the House. Yeah, I think it is pretty remarkable that they did get the House to sign on to this because there are things in there that some of the House representatives had expressed opposition to earlier. Um, so I think what you said, Clay, about this being kind of a three-sided negotiation is really important to keep in mind just given the, the different dynamics of what's at play. You know, With the House, you have to remember that it's, it's a much larger body. It's much... Um, more volatile um, politically, um, so that can play out in the kind of you know decisions that are being made on the budget and other things. However, the Senate had the advantage of 
revised revenue estimates. So while they were negotiating their budget, they all of a sudden money fell out of the sky, figuratively speaking, that wasn't available to the House. So they were able to put money back in that the House didn't have at their disposal. So they, they were lucky in a way. Well, and this is, isn't this kind of one of the, the talking points but behind this um, kind of the, the continuing money that's just been, been passed or, you know, kind of keeping this as is for the next five or six months. They'll, they'll have even more new revenue by the end of that time that they could possibly do more things with in the budget. So um, any, other bu- any other budget thoughts before we move on? I think it'll just be interesting to watch um, where potential areas of compromise are found in this because it seems like right now, you know, we've been talking a lot about both sides kind of digging in their heels. Um, but that's only what we see you know, in public, there could be more discussions happening behind closed doors. And I also think it'll be interesting to watch how this plays out in the broader kind of political conversation, um, especially in light of the kind of speculation surrounding the governor's path to a possible Senate run. Um, This one would think would delay any kind of decision on that. Um, But in the meantime, that also gives, you know, additional fodder for people who might be looking to preemptively attack her, as we've seen with a number of um, kind of outside groups like the National Republican Senatorial Committee, other mm-hmm. big groups like that. Yeah, I find it interesting that they're they're even disagreeing on how to go forward from here, meaning the timing of the negotiations to to resolve this budget impasse. The legislature wants to come in after the end of the summer in the fall. Governor Hassan wants to start now, wants the conversation to continue. And so this that's why I think it's looking up to be a, a prolonged fight. Mm-hmm. So in other words, that yeah. way everyone can get in their summer vacation before we <laughs> right. talk about the budget again. Well, yeah, at least and at least the legislators can too. Um, uh, moving on to the uh, the perennial New Hampshire story, um, or quadrennial, I guess, as the case may be, uh, looking at the primary. Um, there's been some uh, interesting polling news recently with uh, Donald Trump placing second place in a New Hampshire poll here recently. That was from Suffolk University, I believe, with Jeb Bush in first. Um, and there's also been some recent polling showing uh, really robust support for uh, Bernie Sanders, the Vermont independent uh, senator, uh, on the Democratic side. So, um, Casey, what would you say the, the state of the primary is uh, today in New Hampshire? I mean, I think it's really, you know, I've had a number of kind of uh, New Hampshire political operatives put it this way to me that, you know, the primary is a marathon and not a sprint. So it's really important to kind of take the long view on these things. Um, that being said, I think it surprised a lot of people that Donald Trump was registering in second place in the poll um, that came out earlier this week. So that was, as you said, from Suffolk University. Um, That had Jeb Bush at 14.4% of the vote, followed by um, the Donald at 10.6%, and then Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin, Senator Marco Rubio, um, and uh, Ben Carson, a famed neurosurgeon who was dipping his toe into politics. following behind. Um, So one of the things that's important to keep in mind, and I talked to the pollster behind these results earlier this week about this, is that this poll was actually done within days of both uh, Trump and Bush announcing their intent to run for president and visiting New Hampshire. Um, Therefore, you have to kind of keep in mind that they were both generating a lot of buzz at the time um, and were fresh in people's minds. 
Another thing that's interesting to note is that when you look at, um, when the polls separated out people who were self-identified conservatives and self-identified moderates, um, among conservatives, uh, Trump did much better, but when you look at moderates, um, Jeb Bush enjoys a much wider lead over the rest of the field, including Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, so that speaks to kind of the, uh, you know, the varied makeup of New Hampshire's political, um, or New Hampshire's kind of voting population. Um, and one of the other things that's important to keep in mind is that uh, there are, as we all know, a number of undeclared voters in New Hampshire who can vote in you know, either primary. So the state of the Democratic race could have an impact on what happens in the Republican primary, because if that's more competitive, that might draw more people to that side who otherwise might vote in the Republican race. Well, and the important thing to note, too, I recall about some of the the polling done on Donald Trump is that he is by far the most disliked Republican candidate. Yeah, that is also, I'm glad you pointed that out. So that's another challenge that he's going to have to overcome is that his favorability ratings are underwater right now. So while he might be, um, you know, 10.6% of people's first choice, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's, you know, surefire going to win, um, especially when there are a number of people who do not think favorably of him. Right. It's interesting, too, that it shows the breadth of the Republican field that you can be in second place with 10%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not a very, that's not a very (laughs) large slice of the, uh, well, and, and, 15, and only 15% for Jeb Bush, I mean, which, I mean, he'd, he'd obviously rather be in first mm-hmm. than second or third or f- further down. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's one of the things that people have definitely been talking about with, with Jeb Bush is, you know, there's been there's been grumbling in establishment Republican circles about him, like kind of not pulling away from the pack, as it were, that he's still... You know, he, he, he's not as clear of a front runner as maybe they expected that he might be. Um, but, I mean, that's what one of the other things that happens when you have, you know, I think there's something like 12 or 13 declared Republicans at this point and many more to come. Yeah, we're inching up there by the day, it seems. Um, so, John, you were saying, um, so, so who, 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 who was in the state today, you are saying, in terms of other candidates? Uh, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal and Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, and Jindal just just declared a, a day or uh, yesterday. Or yesterday, day yeah. actually, and yeah. um, following suit with a number of other candidates, he has made New Hampshire his first, if not one of his first stops on his early primary voting tour of the country. So, did you all see the the Jindal announcement video? By the way, I have to. <laughs> it is it is it is like it's it's shot by like a security camera or something behind a tree as he talks to his family. Is very unusual. I think that's kind of, um, you know, you've seen a number of the candidates this year, uh, I think going out on a limb a little bit in the, uh, the videos and the content that they're putting out there. And I think that's reflective of them trying to kind of stand out and in, um, you know, not to kind of simplify this too much, but to generate a little bit of buzz online. If you do something mm-hmm. that's like quirky like that, um, you can get a BuzzFeed post out of it, a Was- and, and occasionally, you know, a Washington Post story out of it on most days. Um, so you see a number of candidates also kind of having, you know, puns on their error pages on their websites and other kind of Easter eggs. Um, whether that earns them any votes is up for debate, but it definitely gets them some attention. The kind of the viral primary. Mm-hmm. 
who are you, you know, who are you uh, attracting with your, with your unusual website of things? Um, George Pataki is also in the state. George Pataki is in the state today. Yes, he had a number of stops. I believe he was at Roby's uh, store in Hooksett. Um, had a breakfast this morning, um, and he's been back a number of times. I think, you know, in conversations with him earlier on, um, it's very clear that he wants to make New Hampshire a central part of his campaign. He's trying to paint himself as someone who is kind of above the partisan fray. Um, Mm -hmm. He's asked his Republican colleagues to kind of play down um, the emphasis on social issues because that gives Democrats more, you know, ammunition essentially to to kind of tear them down on that basis and wants to focus on other issues that he thinks will um, appeal to a more moderate electorate. And then this weekend we've got Rhode Island Governor Lincoln Chafee and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Yeah, now let's talk for a moment here we, since we brought up, brought up uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, what, what his polling is, has also been, I mean, I think he's surprised some people with his polling results, Yeah, right? I think, um, you know, I think looking at some of the coverage, and this is where it's interesting for me being in the state of New Hampshire, seeing this all play out and then watching how it gets covered in the national media. I think when he announced his candidacy, um, there were a lot of skeptics who said that, you know, he's going to have a really hard time. This is going to be an uphill battle. And I don't think anyone's disputing that it is a challenge for him to take on someone like Hillary Clinton, who is so, um, you know, prominent and has so many connections within the political world. Um, that being said, I think that he is surprising a lot of people in the amount of uh attention he's attracting and the amount of voters he's drawn to his events here. I've been to events with him where he's, you know, had overflow crowds listening in through windows and things like that. Um, So there's definitely an enthusiasm here. So there was a poll that came out actually this morning. um, I believe it was from Bloomberg and the New Hampshire Institute of Politics. um, And that echoes what an earlier Suffolk poll found. I believe it was last week that uh, shows that Senator Sanders is closing the gap on Hillary Clinton in a way that I think people um, uh, are surprised to see. So the one that came out from Bloomberg today uh, found that Hillary Clinton is still undisputedly the front runner, um, has about 56% of the respondents said that she was their first choice. Um, but Sanders has about 24% of that, um, which is not a bad showing, all things considering. Um, at the same time, Martin O'Malley, the Maryland governor, is kind of plateauing in those polls, and Lincoln Chafee is also having a hard time registering. So I think what you're seeing right now is that the main competition is between Sanders, who draws kind of a more progressive yes. crowd, um, and Clinton, who you know has has her own profile and is very prominent in her own right. So. Well, and if there was going to be a space on either side of Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary, it was probably going to be to the left mm-hmm. of her. Yeah. And that was, you know, and, and Bernie Sanders came out, you know, pretty early mm-hmm. and was, was very feisty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and it, does, it doesn't hurt that he's just from next door, I think, mm-hmm. either. Yeah, I think, Hampshire, I, mean, you know. I think a lot of people in New Hampshire know him, um, and I think that he's also benefited from some of the grassroots efforts that were already in place here for um, Elizabeth Warren, um, the Run Warren Run efforts. I think he's picked up a number of supporters from that. Um, so I think he definitely has the potential to fill the void that some Democrats might have uh felt existed in the absence of an Elizabeth Warren candidacy this year. Um, so let's let's 
move on unless there's any 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 other uh, any other primary nuggets, John. I think we're all right. So yeah, so in our final uh, segment today, we're going to check in with PolitiFact New Hampshire. Uh, PolitiFact checks out statements from politicians and public officials and sometimes ads against them, deciding whether they're true, mostly true, half true, mostly false, false, or pants on fire. And uh, John, you're, uh, you're the editor of uh, PolitiFact New Hampshire Stories, so uh, what's, what was our, what's, what's been our most recent one, I ask, <laughs> so innocently. There was an excellent fact check oh. written by Clay Wirestone. By me, yes. Um, yes. About about um, Maggie Hassan mm-hmm. and her her uh, proposed spending on the state budget. As a matter of fact, Clay, I'm not sure if you're aware, but we got an email from a reader requesting that we check this ad. Oh, so let's just I, I have this up here. So let's see if we can hear just a little bit of the ad. It was from Impact America Action. And it's, it was titled Hassan Spending. Maggie Hassan has a spending problem. In the state Senate, she voted to increase spending by 35%. As governor, Hassan first proposed a $1 billion spending increase. After that, $700 million more. To pay for it? So the, the part of that that we decided to check was the, as governor, Hassan first pr- proposed a $1 billion spending increase. And, John, the rating, the rating we ended up assigning to that was what? Half true. Yes. Um, and, you know, half true is, a, is an oft-criticized rating because people are looking for the veracity of these statements. How can it be half true, half false? But the thinking behind it is there's literal truth to the statement mm-hmm. that, when, that when Governor Hassan first, first took office, she inherited a $10.1 billion budget when you take into account all of the federal funding. Mm-hmm. And her first budget was, was proposed at $11.1 billion. That's a billion dollars yep. with a B. And, the, and you know, and, the, and the, the caveats to all of this are that, that you know, the, the increases in her budget were largely in three areas. Um, one of them being the general fund, which is what we generally we often talk about when we talk about the state budget these days, because the general fund is what most of the taxes go into. It's what most of the state departments are funded with. You know, when you talk about the state budget, it's it's that. And she she had an increase of roughly two hundred million in the general fund, but then there was around five hundred million dollars worth of increased federal funding. She was proposing an expansion of, of Medicaid at the time, so that was partially from that. And then there were, was around three hundred million in in other funds. And these are kind of fees that keep some other agencies going and some kind of pass-through money. So, you know, in reality, um, so yes, even though the total budget budget figure was a $1 billion increase, really the, the part that was really debated and was really talked about in the, the state house was really just that $200 million portion in the general fund. Mm-hmm. And I think the context of these ads matter. And so they're not just citing a billion-dollar increase. They are saying specifically Maggie Hassan has a spending problem. Mm-hmm. She wants higher taxes and less for New Hampshire families. So looking at the context and the attempts to paint the governor in a certain way because of this billion-dollar increase, that's how the, the literal truth of this thing erodes as you look at the funding sources, as you rightly pointed out, as you look at where the money comes from, where that spending increase comes from, it really wasn't through a massive tax or fee hike. It right. was through 
the the federal dollars that were coming to New Hampshire that, that were already that were already there mm -hmm. and that would sit in an account and sit in an account in Washington D.C. if we didn't accept them. Mm -hmm. um, but you know that's that's also just uh, the the way it is. I mean, also when you do these fact checks, is that you've got to look at you know kind of all of these these aspects, the literal truth, kind of the the context, and then you know what would somebody think about it? Just just uh, take away from it if they just heard the ad. Mm -hmm. So. The Democratic Party, uh, when the ad first came out, to the Democratic Party, uh, signaled to two. They they said the ad was was debunked by Politifact, and they signaled to two previous fact checks that were done in 2012, when Hassan was running for governor um, at the time. So they they actually made claims about her. Uh, supporting tax and fee increases when she was Senate Majority Leader, and then a uh, budget, a 24% budget increase um, when she was Senate Majority Leader. Both of those were also found to be half true. So the most recent ruling is very much in keeping with the the literal truth versus the context in which uh, she's trying to be painted. Exactly. So, well. Casey, John, thank you very much for, uh, for uh, joining us today. It was fun. Good chat. Thanks, Clay. Thanks for listening. If you want to have some music go at the end of the podcast, why don't you submit some? Send it to me, Clay Wirestone, at cwirestone at cmonitor.com. That's cwirestone at cmonitor.com. Just write, here's some music for your podcast. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with more of The Political Monitor.